afternoon, everybody. Welcome to our Daniel study. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open with us back to where we left off last time, which is in Daniel chapter 2. We did not quite finish the tail end of chapter 2 last week. Daniel has just interpreted the dream of the statue of the gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay uh, statue and the future of the stone that knocks it over. And Nebuchadnezzar has just finally heard the interpretation, and he's going to have a pretty uh, dramatic response to that uh, interpretation from Daniel. Uh, and so we'll do a little bit of a study of Nebuchadnezzar himself before we get into some of the uh, maybe more familiar parts of chapter 3. But uh, we're going to go ahead and begin uh, by reading uh, part of the passage, and then we will pray. Uh, Greg, could you read the tail end of it, so starting in 46 to the end of 2? Yeah, all right. Let's read Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Scott, can you pray for us? Yeah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful for the chance to be able to gather here and to open your word up and to study it, uh, to discuss uh, Daniel, this wonderful book of Daniel, uh, what a privilege it's been to be able to just study it so far. And uh, I have been struck by how applicable it is to our lives. And once again, I think we're going to see that today. Uh, so, Father, uh, thank you for this book and help us to be attentive to it. Help us to be able to apply truth from this uh, well-known passage, especially in chapter 3, uh, to our lives. Uh, help us to have faith uh, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I pray that our faith would be strengthened even today as we study their wonderful example how they remained uh, steadfast in the, in the face of an immense trial. And uh, so I pray you produce faith in us as we study this passage, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we, as we look at this to kind of begin and tie together last week with this week, uh, after this, um, this dream has been interpreted, if you remember, the rock that is cut without hands is the Messiah, the Messianic kingdom, what Christ is going to do. The rock strikes the bottom of this gigantic statue representing the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of man, and it topples. And this stone that was just seemingly small comparative to the statue, the stone starts getting bigger. And it becomes eventually a gigantic mountain that takes over the entire world. And so the kingdom of Christ, although it begins and looks very small compared to the kingdoms of this world, at the end of the day, it's going to be the only kingdom standing. And every other kingdom will have toppled and fallen short. And in a sense, the gospel is present in this very dream. I mean, it's not a full articulation of the atonement of Christ on the cross. You don't get that kind of detail. The resurrection of Jesus is not like necessarily named in this, in this particular dream. But you get the basic storyline of the whole Bible, and that the messianic kingdom will come and will take over and will reign over earth forever and ever, and it will never be destroyed. So you're seeing here very much something pointing to Jesus, the rock cut without hands. And Nebuchadnezzar hears this news of the messianic victory of the future, and he responds, now it's a mixture response, but you could see it as being a very positive response. I mean, how many of us would be pretty amazed if the most powerful man on, in the world looked at us and we just presented something of the gospel, and he responded by saying, your God is the God of gods. Your, your God is the King of kings. Your, your God is the great God. I, I 
mean, I don't want to throw people under the bus here, but I mean, you could see, um, I want to be careful how I say these things, but you could just definitely see how, um, now listen, I can say this because I used to sort of be a youth pastor, so I can, I can throw all of us youth pastors under the bus, uh, but I mean, you, you could see a youth pastor right here telling Nebuchadnezzar he's a Christian because he just heard something of the gospel, right? The Messianic kingdom's going to take over the world. He responds, look at this, look at verse uh, 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to, to reveal the mystery. And he, gave, he gives Daniel high honors. I could see, I mean, I'm not stretching this too far. I could see a lot of uh, American Christians at the end of the church service, the person comes forward and says, your God is God of gods. He's the king of kings. I, I, I believe he's the re revealer of mysteries. I do believe his kingdom will last forever. I believe this is a true uh, future that's being predicted here. And I can see a lot of Christians going, hey, you're in. Like, you're in, like you're one of us, like you're a member of the church, let's baptize you right now, like you, you've prayed the prayer kind of a thing, like you're, you're in, you're good. And um, we're going to find out Nebuchadnezzar is nowhere close to converted, because the very next chapter starts with what? Well, we're, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but look, look at 3.1, King Nebuchadnezzar, what, made an image of gold? Okay, now just stop for a second, 90 plus feet tall. So he did, he did believe the dream, right, he's the head of gold. So what does he do? Oh, I'm gonna, if, I'm, if I'm a giant statue, I'm at the top on the head. Well, let's make a giant statue of me, a giant 90-foot statue of gold that represents me and my kingdom. Let's make everyone bow down to it. You can see how he's not even close to converted because the idols of his heart are not only not uprooted, he's forcing everyone to conform to his own idol himself. And so he is not converted, but yet he's powerfully affected by gospel truth right? Enough to offer homage to Daniel, exalt Daniel, praise Daniel. He says some of the right words on his lips about God, the God of gods, the King of kings, the revealer of the future. He actually believes what the dream is saying is true. That's why he makes the idol, which is, you know, a, a weird way to go with that dream. But he at least believes something of that is true. And yet he's not converted. And so I, I just, just starting out, I know this is a, a, an intense note to start on in Sunday school for today, but there is an incredible um, tendency in American Christianity and, you know, as strange as this is, the sermon text today is on the exact same topic, so you'll probably hear more ranting about this in about an hour. But, but um, I do think that we have made something called easy believism, which is prevalent in, I mean, let's be honest, Southern Baptist churches may be the worst at this of most of the denominations. I don't know, maybe there's another one that's worse, but I mean, we are bad in terms of how we handle this in the SBC. But I think some of this is being corrected some in the last few decades. There's been a lot of good movement. But I mean, you look back at the last century, and man, you've got uh, people who show no evidence of a change of life, but they've said a few words and they've affirmed a few truths about God, and they, give, they get the full endorsement, the full stamp of approval of being Christians, even though the, the, the idols have not been uprooted in the heart. So thoughts on this? Yeah, I'll just, just piggyback on that. Uh, I think it was Matthew Henry said, strong convictions often come short of sound conversions. Vody said that Nebuchadnezzar is awed and humbled but not saved. But just a story on that that I heard Mark Dever tell. Mark Dever was a gifted evangelist. He meets people like at restaurants and stuff, and he'll just share the gospel with them. And one guy he met, his name was Ryan. I think he was a bartender, but he shared the gospel with them, asked him if he wanted to read the gospel of Mark, and they started to read the gospel of Mark together. And then he said one day, I don't know how long they'd been reading the gospel of Mark, a while, he said Ryan came into his office and just said, you know, I'm a Christian. I've been converted. He'd written out his eloquent testimony like in a, in a, on a sheet of paper, shared it with him. Mark Dever took him over to the, to the church office and had the whole staff gather around, and he said, Ryan, tell him what just happened. He, he shared the story. They all prayed for him. He said he asked, then everybody left. It was just Mark Dever and this guy, Ryan. And Mark Dever turned to him and said, Ryan, he said, uh, I don't know if you've been converted. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but I'm encouraged. Uh, he said, time will tell. He said, I want to help you in whatever way I can. 
And he said Ryan had some difficult decisions to make in the future that would, were going to show like, which way he was leaning. And he said Ryan seemed to choose decisions that seemed to line up that he was a Christian. But Dever just said, uh, we don't want to give people false assurance. He said, it's the Holy Spirit's job to, to give assurance, to bear witness with their spirit that they're children of God. And yet we're so prone to do exactly what you're saying, Mark. Like, as soon as someone prays this prayer, like, you're in. You're saved forever. And that's just a terrible thing to do. We ought to be very careful uh, to give someone assurance. It's not really our job. It's the Spirit's job. So, I mean, here's an example where I think people would have given Nebuchadnezzar assurance, and they, we, he's not converted. So you're giving someone false assurance, and we've got to be careful. Well, I wonder how much this particular instance, Nebuchadnezzar, affected um, Jesus when he taught about conversion, especially in the parables, because we're all familiar with the parable of the soils, the four soils that Jesus talks about. You know, the sower goes out to sow. Uh, you know, some of the seed lands on the, the road, the rock, or just the roadside. Some lands on the rock, some lands in the thorns, and then some lands, um, you know, in the good soil. The ones that's on the road, Satan just snatches it away. The ones on the rocky soil, what's interesting there is it springs up immediately with great joy. And, you know, according to, to what you guys are saying, and I think that's, I've seen that in my own experience too, it's, well, they must be saved. I mean, look at this excitement. Look at all this joy that they have. You know, they, they seem to be affected by God in some way. But what happens? Persecution, difficulties come, and they're done. They depart. They leave Christ. Uh, it wasn't a real conversion. And I think we need to get to the doctrine, back to the doctrine more of perseverance and faith. You know, we talk about the perseverance of the faith, you can't lose your salvation. It's a two-sided coin, y'all. Yes, on, uh, the, the ground of that is the fact that God preserves us. Like that's our hope at the end of the day, God's preserving of us. But the other side of that coin is, is us persevering in faith. And faith is not a, a passive thing. Faith is a, it, it's an act of trusting. It's an act of clinging and cleaving to Christ um, and you, you only know the people who have genuine faith because they persevere in faith over time. Um, and so again, Nebuchadnezzar initially, oh yeah, look, he's he, saying Daniel's God's the true God and, and all of that. But like that rocky soil, what happens? Next chapter, he shows it's not real. And we have to be ever so careful with that um, because a lot of people are deceived into thinking they're, they're Christians. And they think because my name was on a church roll at some point that they're okay. And that's not the case. We're not saved by being on a church roll. We're not saved by being baptized or anything that we do. We're saved by trusting in Jesus. And a true trust in Jesus perseveres over a lifetime. Yeah, and with the four soils parable, the, the rocky soil, just like you're saying, it's, it receives the word with joy. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like astonishing stuff. And then immediately it falls away when trouble comes, when persecution comes. So that, that's the more the negative side, right? Persecution would be more the negative temptations there to get away from that. The thorny soil, it's more of a positive thing. It's the love of riches and the love of what you want to do with your life, desire for other things and riches and worries about this world. It's more of a positive thing. More like the, it's more like pain versus pleasure. The, the rocky soil goes away from the pain of following Christ. Yeah. The thorny soil goes away because of the pleasure of other things. And so both the negative and the positive can be, can be reasons why someone can be shaken from, from where they at least look like they, they are starting out uh, as believers in Christ. Other thoughts on 
I'm going to just say one other thing, uh, which is an example. You, you would know this person. I'm not going to name their name, but it was somebody you knew in high school at Westminster who looked like he was converted, like he was excited. Uh, I think he was dating a girl who was a Christian, and he was, you said he had, you saw his Bible. He was underlining oh, yeah. like 1 Peter and everything, or I think whatever passage it was. He, had, he helped initiate a Bible study that he led with his own class over the summer between his, I think it was his junior and senior year of high school. They were going through, I think, the Corinthian letters. His Bible was covered. I saw it in ink and highlighting or whatever. I mean, this, this guy was devouring his Bible. He was leading a Bible study with someone else in his class. Over, and this is a long time ago, through the summer, uh, he, was, he was wanting to talk about spiritual things. His life seemed like it had been radically changed in high school. He went from not caring to caring greatly. I, I, I you keep going. No, you keep going. You, you know <laughs> but, better than I. But, I mean, this is a tragic turn in the story where, you know, and I don't keep up with him. I haven't seen him in a few years. Um, I saw him after he had a car accident a few years ago, which he survived, but was really banged up, and I got to see him once then. But he in college, it was like the, he took the, the, the almost stereotypical prodigal turn in the other direction where he got involved in alcohol and drugs, like the worst, really one of the worst, almost hard to imagine how bad things got. And uh, if you even saw a picture of him then and now, he just looks drastically different. Everything about the way he looks and presents himself has just gone into this dark area. But yeah, I mean, now today he would not, uh, I don't think he would even jokingly try to claim Christianity, but he, he sprouted up and looked like something was really happening tail end of high school. And then soon after graduation, it, it, it withered away. It wasn't the girlfriend broke up with him, I think, was the thing. One uh, of the things that led to, it was like, that was the trial that just I see. revealed the, yeah. But, That's probably right. But I mean, this is real life. This stuff happens. And if you, somebody would have given him false assurance right there, that's terrible because he, he fell away. So we, again, we got to be careful. And just on this note, I, I do think one of the reasons why we often tend to give assurance that will become, in many cases, false assurance that we don't really have the right to be giving in, in certain instances is because, I don't get this exactly, but we absolutely refuse to let people agonize in that state of, I don't think I know the Lord. I know that I have sin. I know I need the Lord. I'm not really sure that I want the Lord. That kind of state, that agony, that, that no man's land in the middle, that sort of place, we almost can't tolerate someone staying there. So we just start going, well, if you're doubting or worried at all, that's clear sign that you have faith. Can you doubt your salvation and even be afraid of judgment and not be born again? Yes. I, I mean, I can tell you personal stories of me in that state at times. So yeah, I think, you know, well, the very fact that they're afraid and asking questions is sure sign that the Spirit has, has brought them to new life. That is not in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, I mean, demons are afraid of hell. Remember in Mark, the demon-possessed man runs up to Jesus, says, Lord, he addresses him, Holy One of Israel, you know, Lord, he says, please do not send us to the place of torment before the time. That's a, that's a demon praying the prayer, isn't it? Right? Telling Jesus who he is, you're Lord, right? You're, you're, the, you're, you're, the, you're, the, true, you're, you're the true Lord, you're the, you're the Son of God. And then he says, please don't send us to hell. So there's a demon praying the prayer. Is the demon saved? No, the demon is asking Jesus under the proper name for him. The demon knows exactly who Jesus is and knows he controls final judgment. It says, please don't torment us before the time. Don't send us to hell. And Jesus, you remember, sends him into the pigs. All right, it's a strange story, but you have here even that natural sense of I don't want to perish, demons have. And that, that is no automatic sign of saving faith. Signs of saving faith, and again, I'll talk about this more in the sermon in a, in a little bit, but signs of saving faith involve a delight in and love for the Lord Jesus, an abiding, lasting, deep love uh, from, the heart of our, from the heart of our new nature uh, for the Lord Jesus. Can I ask you a question on that Yeah. Um, in light of that? Because um, I totally agree, by the way, totally agree with what you said on that. Um, but there are instances where people have extremely tender consciences because of backgrounds in like very yes. legalistic settings where they're, you know, just beat up all the time for not being good enough, not measuring up, 
not having everything perfect, how would you counsel someone? Because um, this is something like we need to be, maybe it's in our own lives, maybe it's someone we know. How would you counsel someone who is a genuine believer but struggles greatly at times, even though they know the truth, they affirm the truth, like, and, and there's, there's evidence in their lives, clear evidence of conversion, but they still have seasons, periods where like they just, they sink down um, and they, they hear what you said and say, well, I'm struggling and I'm doubting, am I not saved? Even though, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. how, how would you counsel somebody so they, they don't reach the wrong conclusion on that when it's clear that they are saved? Man, that is a great question, and I don't know if I have a tremendous answer to oh, give you, fine. but I, I will say that's a, such an important question. Whenever this topic comes up, especially in a, it's not a one-on-one, we're talking to a group, okay? So it's a, it's, you're, t- you're kind of hitting everybody with the same truth mm-hmm. at the same time, and everyone's in a different place, right? So it's a little hard to, to do this, but almost every time assurance of salvation is the topic of a teaching time, and you have to talk about it because it's all over the Bible and it's loving to talk about it, there's this, there's this tightrope that you're always walking. On, let's just be honest. Not trying to use this word like in a negative, just like the uh, Puritans used to call them false professors, people who profess faith falsely. I, you might call them fake Christians or something. I don't know. People who think that they're a believer, but they're not truly, which is what I was for a decade of my life. And then on the other side, you have genuine Christians who struggle with assurance and doubt regularly, right? And every time this topic comes up, very often the genuine Christian gets super bothered and the the, the, the pseudo-Christian just leaves kind of feeling like, oh, whatever. And you want it to be exactly the opposite. You want, you want the person who's not genuinely in the Lord, in, in Christ, to be shaken and absolutely terrified uh, by their state. And you want the believer who's a genuine believer to have the sense of the tenderness of God and the nearness of God and the gentleness and compassion of God that is so true of us in Christ. And it's very hard, you know, you're painting with these broad uh, ideas, and it's very hard because some, in my, in my understanding, the, the text should generally kind of guide the, 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 the thrust of the message. So if it's a warning passage, I think it's okay that a lot of people leave a little shaken. Right, yeah, and, absolutely. And if, it's, if, it's a, if it's a come to me and, I, I, you know, you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest, the tone of the text should not be threatening. <laughs> the tone of the text should have that gentle uh, nearness of Christ, and people will often leave with a sense of, you know, nearness of the Lord at the same time. But uh, for a person with a tender conscience, and I've got a friend of mine who I am totally persuaded is a believer, and I think he knows he's a believer, but he would say doubt about his salvation is one of his ongoing besetting issues. And so when I talk to him personally, I have to sort of front load a lot of encouraging statements from the yeah. Lord and a lot of encouraging promises of verses like First John 2, I write these things that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, a believer… We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I mean, lavishing those kinds of promises in a situation where you don't have any real reason to think this person doesn't know the Lord, but they have a right. sensitive conscience. I think, I think directing them to some of those tender passages and asking them yeah. to sort of, Lord, give me faith to trust in, in what you've done and show me what's, what's true of me. And that's really, I mean, I would, you've said it really well. I think John 6, where he says, whoever comes to me, I will know wise cast out. I'm giving them those kind of promises and then yeah. take it to the Lord. He's a merciful, like you've said, Craig, merciful. Like he go, draws into that situation, tell him to plead to God uh, for assurance. Like, uh, yeah, just pour, pour your heart out. And then you plead those promises, like in John 6. Or, Can I say one more thing? Yeah. I'm going to mimic you here, Scott. I'm going to draw from a historical figure here, <laughs> okay. William Cooper. Um, some of y'all probably mm-hmm. know who William Cooper was. He was a contemporary of um, John Newton. Um, William Cooper wrote some profoundly, profoundly rich hymns. And we'd read these hymns and we'd think, oh my goodness, 
man, how on fire for the Lord must this guy be? How strong in his faith? How assured must this guy be? And he struggled like to the point of wanting to take his own life at times. He would, he would reach such a deep, dark well. Um, but he had folks like Newton who would speak into his life and pray with him and encourage him and speak God's truth to him and remind him, hey, listen, you know, here I see every evidence to, to, to affirm that you know the Lord, that he is on your side, that he is for you. Um, but I, I think it's, it's just some people might be more prone to struggling with that than others. And just know yourself, I think, would probably be the best thing. And if you're more prone to a Cooper-like mentality or, you know, the doubting a lot, um, you know, flood your mind as best you can with, you know, Matthew 11, with John 6 and other texts where you can just call on those passages and say, Lord, take these truths and just, again, awaken my soul to the fact that you're gentle, you're lowly, you're tender. You know, if, if I want to come to you, you're not going to cast me out and, and stuff like that. Like take those, those truths and those promises and just preach them to yourselves um, until you kind of get your heart in line with what they're saying. Well, that's good. All right, let's, let's continue with uh, the beginning of chapter 3 of Daniel. I'll read the first seven verses. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth uh, six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that, uh, ne that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Well, not only do we see that Nebuchadnezzar is not truly a repentant human being because his idol is now made the center of his whole life right now. He sets it up and threatens death for anyone who does not worship the statue, which is almost certainly of himself. It's just my guess. I mean, he's the head of gold of a giant statue. So who's this giant statue of gold? It's probably he himself representing his kingdom. And you're supposed to bow down and submit everything to, to him. And... Um, Nebuchadnezzar here clearly has not uprooted his idol. So th that is one thing to look for in, in assurance of salvation conversations. So going back to your comment there, Greg. The question is not, like Greg said, you, I talked to a guy who was, I won't go into the story. I used to work with a guy who was not a Christian in another, another place. And uh, I mean, not even close to Christian. And he told me, because I had to give him a ride home from work late one night. We're talking about stuff. He saw I had a Bible in my car, so he's talking about how he was the youngest, uh, he was the youngest deacon at his Baptist church growing up. He said he was like 14. I have no idea if that is true. It made no sense to me, but he said he was a deacon in his teenage years at like age 14. I was like, 
Okay, I mean, I'll, I'll just believe you. I'm not sure if that is correct. But that's what he told me. He's the youngest deacon in the history of his church when he's a teenager. Now, since then, he's, he's living, he's told me where his drug dealer lives. I mean, he was not, okay, he was not walking with the Lord, okay? It was, I was like, man, this is an interesting conversation. But when I was about to drop him off somewhere in Athens at his house, um, he, he was telling me that he knew he was still a believer because of, he was the deacon at his church. He was baptized. He was a, he, you know, he prayed to receive Christ when he was young. So he, he was pointing way back past all this unrepentant life of the last decade or and a half. And he pointed back to when I was 14. He kept talking about this thing that happened. And um, here, one of the ways we look for assurance, and let's be careful, we're not supposed to always be looking inward. We should be, uh, Robert Murray McShane said, for every one look within, take 10 looks to Christ. So the, the general direction of our life should be Outward focused, not inward. If we, if we spend 90% of our Christian life looking in, we will have a very depressed Christian life because it is not going to be hopeful. But we look mainly to Christ. But it is not wrong to do self-examination periodically. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Second. Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself to see whether Christ is in you. So um, what we should be doing is mainly looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But we should also be looking to see, is the message of Christ changing my life at all? Is it affecting the way I live? And if we look back at my present life and I am submitting entirely to idols, like Nebuchadnezzar is now, he should have no assurance. So Nebuchadnezzar should not say, wait, three months ago, six months ago, I praised the God of Israel and I talked about how this dream was amazing. That's, a, that's my assurance. Back then at youth camp, I did this thing and I even signed this card and we even, you know, we, we wrote something down on like a rock and threw it in the lake or we burned something or whatever you do, you throw it into the fire, whatever these little rituals we do. And we, I know I'm a believer because look back six months ago when I said this declaration about the God of gods, but now I'm completely enslaved to my idol. Well, he should have no assurance of salvation because the question is, I think Piper said, I know I'm alive, not because I'm holding my birth certificate, but because my heart is beating and I'm breathing, right? I, I don't know I'm alive because I have a past event that tells me I'm alive now. I know I'm alive because I'm alive. I'm living, I'm alive, I'm breathing, my heart is beating. Spiritually, you, we should not put our hope on past events. It's nothing wrong to look back. I think I was converted at 16. I don't think it's wrong to know if you can tell when you were converted. That's fine. You may not know. But the main thing you should do is not look back and say, when I was eight, when I was 22, when I was 53, whatever age you were, I think the best thing to do is look today. Am I putting sin to death by the power of the Spirit? Am I uprooting idols by God's grace and trying by God's grace to live for the Lord Jesus? Or am I owned by my idols? Am I living under submission to my, to my idols? In which case, there should not be the same sense of assurance if I'm just completely submitted to my, to my idols. Yeah, that's, that's really good. I'm mean, not much to add to that. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson said his sinful heart had been shaken, not renewed. The truth was that instead of having a new heart, he had the same old heart now just a little bit more hardened. And it, it reminded me of the story the guy was telling you, he, the deacon guy uh, pointing back. Piper says, like, his mom said he became a believer at six. He said he doesn't even remember it. Mm -hmm. He doesn't even remember the occasion, but he said the reason how I know is because I have faith today. Like, I'm trusting Christ today. That's just much more healthy a perspective when you hear somebody's pointing back and just everything. Like, dad took a guy out, and the guy was clinging to this thing when he was seven, and there was, like, no fruit in his life. It's this, that's just a dangerous, uh, it should be warning bells going off all around if that's what you're clinging to, but there's no change to life now. I think, too, we need to keep in mind the for Nebuchadnezzar here, you know, God, there's, there's a process that God's using to humble Nebuchadnezzar. We get through chapter three into chapter four and Nebuchadnezzar, you know, we'll talk about whether or not was he truly converted or not when we get there. Um, but God takes Nebuchadnezzar through a process of humbling, mm -hmm. um, a extreme process of humbling. And at this point, it is clear Nebuchadnezzar is not humbled in the slightest. In fact, he's actually emboldened in his sin. I mean, he's had his dream interpreted. He, you know, he's praising Daniel's God. 
And then the next thing he does is he thinks he can subvert the dream that God gave him by building an image of solid gold. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the irony here. He's like, okay, the, the image I saw in my dream was gold, silver, bronze. And, you know, hey, if it's all gold, it's not going to fall. Mm-hmm. So he's thinking, man, I, I, can, I can subvert this because there's this stone that's going to come. And, you know, it's going to be the kingdom that fills the whole earth. And he's like, wait a minute. No, my image is going to have every, the whole earth doing this. And in an initial way, he almost gets the whole earth. He almost gets the whole earth, except for those three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who don't bow down. But you see Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, it's one of the things I think on our conversation here, you know, initial supposed conversion, do people actually, who make a profession of faith in Christ, whatever that is, do they get are, are they more humble towards God or do they get bolder in their sin? And I've seen that with people. They think, well, I'm a Christian now, so you know what? And, and all of a sudden, like initially, there might seem to be a little bit of humility, but then you give it six months, three, three to six months a year, and all of a sudden, it's almost like they're bolder in their sin. I mean, that's what Nebuchadnezzar here, I mean, he's, he's daring to make this and say, you've got to worship my image. I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah, and this is a really dramatic and drastic version of what I'm trying to describe here. So I don't know anyone who does it quite like Nebuchadnezzar does it here. But this is an example. Granted, it's the most extreme example I can imagine, 90-foot statue of yourself. But this is an example of actually what you could call twisting Scripture. Mm -hmm. So he starts with something biblically true, that he is the head of gold, right? And he doesn't, where this thing is going is actually to his humiliation. He's going to be crushed by the stone. The stone is Jesus. The kingdom of Christ takes over the world. If he saw where this was going, he would see, my kingdom is going to become nothing one day. I need to trust myself in this stone, the the true son of David, the true Messiah. He he should have been humbled right here at this this message. He should have entrusted himself to the coming Davidic king, and everything would have changed for Nebuchadnezzar. Everything would have changed. But instead, he takes God's divine special revelation through this interpreted dream, which is infallible and inerrant, just like Scripture. It's in Scripture. He takes it, and he takes the starting point, and he brings it to a completely different conclusion, like you're saying. Instead of going to the, I'm going to be broken by this, the, the messianic kingdom, I'm going to submit to him. He says, no, 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 I'm going to make it to where I'm the gold statue, make it all about me. And so Second Peter says, we, we have a danger to take Paul's letters and all the Scriptures and twist them to our own destruction. That's a dramatic way. There are much lesser ways to take the Bible and to turn the meaning to where it's actually about exalting me. And um, again, we can name names very easily. You can, name, you can think of the pastor names. There are very well-known pastors who, you know, every sermon has 500,000 views on YouTube in two days that they put out, and the sermons are oftentimes exalting you, your dreams for your life, your ambitions for your life become what God is all about. Jesus died and rose so that God could fulfill your dreams actual quote from one of these megachurch pastors that is extremely popular, it, it suddenly self becomes sitting on the throne and God becomes a servant to you. God becomes a servant to your ego, your dreams, your ambitions, your exaltation. So your, your, your ambitions could be idolatrous to the core. And now those are never rebuked in the sermon. You're never called to repent of them. You're called actually to serve them and that God's going to help you serve them. And God becomes a useful butler really to help you get what you want. He becomes the servant who's going to help you get what you want. And you end up using God rather than worshiping God because you're really worshiping your own dreams and your egotistical view of your life. And that kind of preaching works, and I mean works in the pragmatic way. It works. It sells. It is popular because you don't have to be converted to love that sermon. You don't have to be converted to love that message. And Nebuchadnezzar, in a distorted way, takes the head of gold and says, okay, I'm dibs on that. I'm going to go with that. I'm going to make this head of gold. And he twists the meaning of what God was going to say. And it's just foolish to think you can go against God. I mean, it never turns out well for anyone 
who thinks they can overthrow God's plans. So don't, don't be deceived by that. Yeah, and uh, I won't have time to look it up, but you know, the first Peter says to humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you, casting your cares on him because he cares for you. We should instead uh, humble ourselves, get down in the dirt and want him to be elevated. Uh, we should decrease, he should increase. And in that, strangely enough, is where our joy is to be found. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar thought joy was found in exalting self. Daniel and his friends knew joy comes from exalting God, not exalting, uh, not exalting self. Do we, can I ask, yeah, do yeah. you think in this we could see uh, a warning for kind of the celebrity culture in the evangelical church today? Simply because, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, he's, I mean, he's making a big deal about himself. He's building this image, um, and, and he calls all the peoples. Obviously, he's very focused on his own glory. But in that, it's like, look what I'm doing for everybody. I've united the world. I mean, one of the, was it uh, Duguid, Ian Duguid, one of the commentators, um, he was talking about the fact that Nebuchadnezzar, this is in Babylon, in the, a plain in Babylon, very likely the same plain where the Tower of Babel mm. was built. And you think about the connection here. Wow. Um, the Tower of Babel was what? It was, it was a symbol of human rebellion against God in unity like a unified rebellion against God. God came down, confused the languages, made humanity spread out over all the earth. And what's Nebuchadnezzar doing? It's interesting. Babylon is such a key theme in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Here's the king of Babylon saying, guess what? We're in that possibly that same, near that same location. And I'm going to unite all these nations because it talks about peoples, nations, and languages. Mm. So it's like what God spread out, I'm bringing back together, almost like I'm going to fix what God broke. Well, just backing that up, uh, in Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. We're told in the very beginning that they went to the land of Shinar, where that's where the tower is built in, the, in Babylon. Now, the, the word Shinar is not used much in the Old Testament, just a handful of times in the whole Old Testament. The only other time, and one of the few other times it's used is, is the opening of Daniel when it says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, uh, verse 2, into, the, into his hand with some vessels of the house of the Lord. He brought him into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. So the fact that Babylon is called Shinar in Daniel should be a direct echo to the Tower of Babel in Shinar. And the way that Nebuchadnezzar is acting, you're right, is the same kind of making a name for myself uh, approach that we that we saw that we saw then another and this is a whole nother subject okay so we won't go long on this but um, hold your spot here and turn to Revelation 13 Revelation 13 Th this idea of the governmental pagan powers have authority to kill you or let you live and you've got to do things their way or you're going to be in big trouble. I, hope, I don't know if that sounds very different from the world that we're living in or increasingly living in right now, but I don't think that uh, it's totally far-fetched that as we live longer in this world and even in our country that, um, I mean, I can just see, I'm, I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist here, I have no idea what the future holds in detail, but I can just see, you know, you want to be a nurse at this hospital, you've got to sign this statement about transgenderism and you've got to agree that this, you know, if a person comes in, they're biologically a male and they say that they're a female, you have to in every way, uh, not just, you've got to speak of them as a female, you've got to treat them as a female, you've got, like, I, I can just someone where well, you got to sign that or you're, you're out of a job here. I mean, stuff, you can multiply a hundred versions of whatever that might look like, but th I think there's coming a day where a real kind of persecution, whatever you want to call that, is coming. And uh, the beast of Revelation 13 is a similar kind of thing. Uh, if you just look at a couple of verses here, look at uh, verse uh, four. And they worship the dragon, that's Satan, obviously, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? 
Do you think people in Babylon could have said the exact same thing about the beast of Babylon and the beast of Nebuchadnezzar? Who can fight against this guy? He's got all the soldiers here. There's a giant fiery furnace that can be heated, I heard, over a you know, thousand degrees or whatever. It was just intensely hot. They can throw us in there or not. It's totally up to the arbitrary whim of our leader. He's made this absurd law, and you can hear people justifying it, going, I'm going to rationalize my compromise. I don't believe in his gold statue. I don't really believe, but I'm going to at least assume the posture he's asking for. I'll live to fight another day. And they'll say, because who can really fight against this beast? You can't win against Nebuchadnezzar. Nobody can win against this guy. He's going to kill me. And I would, you know, then what would my kids do without their dad? What, what would my wife do without her husband? How is my family would, no, no, no. I, we, we're, we're, Christians by the, I think, by the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands in the world are going to start getting really creative ways to sign statements that we cannot in good conscience sign, and they're going to rationalize it and say, we can't win against this. I'll live to fight another day. I'll sign it. When, when it's actually a bigger compromise than we may think. Keep, keep uh, looking ahead here. Let me just read a few more verses. Uh, verse 5, and the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, sounds like Nebuchadnezzar, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, really sounds like Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Do, do you all see how easy it will be to rationalize compromise? And the Scripture here says, anyone who compromises gives their soul away on this kind of stuff. Now, let me, let me just pause. Peter denied Jesus as a real believer, but then immediately repented. So Christians may momentarily stumble, but we're not going to permanently sell our soul away. It's not, not possible because everyone, verse 8, look at it one more time. Look at verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who is slain. God's elect, God's, those who've been written by God's hand in the book of life before the foundation of the world. That's the same as those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. They will show that they are truly God's people. How? Because come life or death, God's true people will show themselves to be God's true people by not ultimately selling God for temporary benefits in this world. They will not do it because God's Spirit is within them. He will hold on to them. This is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints, and those who are true saints will prove themselves saints by not ultimately giving way to the pressure that comes from outside, whatever that pressure may look like and whatever that, may, that, that might be. Thoughts on that? A lot of thoughts. Um, <laughs> in the early church, there was a big controversy over this. Um, when persecution was at its Kind of at its height, and then there was a big re reprieve from persecution. The there was a debate over what do we do with people who profess faith in Jesus, but they, under the threat of persecution, they they you know they they went along with the government. They they recanted a little bit, um, but now that persecution is over, they want to come back to the church. They're saying they were wrong. They want forgiveness, and there was a big debate in the church over what do we do with people who. Temp, you know, we don't know temporarily, permanently had said yes to Caesar and no to Jesus, but now realizing or saying they realize that was wrong um, and they shouldn't have done that. There was a huge debate in the church. And I think in light of, of what happened with the apostle Peter, 
um, the church, I think, needs to be willing to extend grace to people um, simply because it's easy to sit in judgment over folks who've been through difficult situations. It doesn't excuse any denial, like and not in the slightest. There needs to be, I think, genuine evidence of repentance, genuine evidence of, man, you know, I, I can't deny Jesus. Like, I shouldn't have done that. Like, that was sinful. But if Peter can be restored, the man who'd walked with Jesus for three and a half, however many years, and I mean, he was broken over it. Jesus himself restored him. The church should be ready to restore people Absolutely. who may have temporarily wavered um, under the pressure. Um, but saying that, like with any case of repentance, there needs to be genuine evidence of repentance that they're not just saying that, um, you know, to, to get heat off their back for what they did. There needs to be a genuine evidence of repentance um, but it's something we have to wrestle with because if persecution heats up in our lives, some of us by God's, I'll pray all of us by God's grace here, will be faithful unto whatever end. But if whatever happens and somebody we know, even someone in our midst, you know, for, for a temporary moment, they wavered and they come back and they're like, listen, I went back in. I, I, I was wrong. It was sin. We need to be willing to not, some people said, once you've denied Christ like that, you can never come back in. Others said, let's give them a second chance. I lean towards giving a second chance just because of Peter. Yeah, no, I agree. If someone is showing real repentance, they should be welcomed back with open arms. I, th I think of, I think it's in Mark's gospel. Uh, if you remember the very end of Mark's gospel, at the resurrection of Jesus, the, the, the angel, the man in white is at the tomb and the women speak to him. And if I remember, it's in Mark where it's, the angel says, here's the message from Jesus. Go tell the disciples and Peter, that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. Now, the words and Peter are, should almost just bring tears to our eyes because he doesn't just say, go tell the disciples, I'll meet you in Galilee, which would have been sufficient. That's all you have to say. Why in the world, we know Peter's a disciple. Why say, go tell the disciples and Peter? Because this is what, three days after his horrific triple denial uh, outside of Caiaphas's house, while Peter, well, we're told Jesus turns and looks at Peter at the moment of his third denial when the rooster crows, and Peter runs out and weeps bitterly. But Jesus has such tenderness towards repentant failures like all yeah. of us that Peter, his, one of his greatest moments of failure, three days later, Jesus goes t t says to the angel, go say to the disciples and Peter. Add the words and Peter so that Peter knows I have not forsaken Peter. Peter is a repentant sinner. He's, he's, he is welcomed back with open arms. I think that's the way a believer should always be towards those who have failed. No, and just, it's a loose gospel where it's, uh, when the w women come back and report that the, the, the tomb is empty, who takes off? It's Peter and John take off. Why does mm. Peter take off? Because he's, he's thinking, uh, maybe there's hope for me. Maybe there, there is forgiveness. Maybe this story is true. Maybe the gospel is true. And that's why he's racing there to see, see what's going on. It's so moving. And to think of Peter, it just makes it that much more powerful. Even in John 21, too, where he, he jumps yeah. into the water. But explain the contrast, or explain that the, about Jesus, him jumping into the water, because you've talked about that before. Yeah, well, like, I think it's, it's a Luke's gospel where uh, there's the, Jesus is teaching and they've been fishing all night and then Jesus says, why don't you cast your nets on the, on the other side of the boat? And he's a little bit frustrated with it. Like Sproul just said, uh, you know, Jesus, you're the, you're the great uh, theologian, but we're the expert fishermen, but let, let's uh, humor him, fellas, throw it on the other side of the road. We've thrown it, you know, everywhere. And they throw it on the other side. Every fish in the Sea of Galilee jump in, in, the, in there and the nets are breaking. They pull it in and he says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Like, it's like he's in the presence of the Son of God and he just wants him to leave because his sin is, it's the Isaiah 6 moment for Peter. Mm. But then in John 21, it, it's more like he needs this forgiveness. He knows who Jesus is. 
and they, they, when they throw the, the he, he, they don't know it's Jesus. He says, like, cast your nets on the other side. They throw it in. John's the one who picks it up. He said, it's the Lord. He said, it is the Lord. They, he knows instantly. And Peter, as soon as he hears that, he's in the water. He's sw- swimming as fast as he can because, I, you know, I got to get to Jesus. There's forgiveness there. He's denied him. And it's just so moving to picture G- I mean, Peter's this big, strong guy. I think he just swims as fast as he can to get to Jesus on the shore because there's forgiveness there with Christ. So, yeah, it's just even using that in your head when you read those passages, it is just so moving. I mean, that's all of us in one sense. We've all dishonored the Lord, and we, we want to race back to him, and Peter's the, that example of, of racing back. And I, I, I know we're getting a little uh, far afield on this particular point, but I, I, we're, we're almost out of time. Th- this is why, um, and I, I mean, I'm, I know we're, at, we're in church right now, so this is easy to say, but th- this is why all of us, every single one of us needs the local church, because we have to have a counterculture within the increasingly paganized culture that we live in. We, we have to have a different way of doing family than the world has, a different way of raising children than the world has. We have to have different entertainment standards than the world has. We have a different way of doing everything from how the world has. Or the way we handle money should look differently from the culture around us. The, the way we handle television and entertainment should simply be different than the way the world around us. It doesn't mean we, we, you know, we, we don't use electricity and we all, and we, <laughs> we're not talking about some extremism of that sense, but we use it with godliness and with holiness in, in the way that we do these things. And to have a culture of people reaffirming God's truth around me helps me because every week my heart wants to stray, right? My heart wants to believe lies and start moving incrementally away from God's standard. And so I need my wife in front of me, most importantly, to see her, but then to have you guys around me who, when I hear you speak truth back into my life, it knocks sense back into me. So we're, we're this like mutually helping society where each of us is encouraging every other one. So when we get off a little bit, we're, we're called back to God's truth. And I think Without that community, there's no way we have hope to survive whatever trials and temptations may come. You know, whether the world gets worse, humanly speaking, or in some unimaginable way gets better, whatever happens, there will still be temptations everywhere we turn to compromise. And so we need each other to hold each other fast and to help, uh, help us persevere and to, to, uh, to make it to the end of the race with joy. I mean, these three guys had each other. Yeah. I mean, that, that's significant in light of what you're saying. I mean, Daniel goes through it alone. But I, I, not without having seen what they went through, you know, what he, what he does. But these three guys had each other. Um, and, yeah, we, we desperately need one another to persevere. No, that's good. Scott, can you close us? Yeah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, once again, we're thankful uh, to, to gather here and, and to open this book. And, uh, Father, I just pray that uh, you would help us to have wisdom when we're dealing with uh, people who may be struggling with assurance of salvation. Uh, give us grace in those situations, give us wisdom, help us to remember really it's not our job to give someone assurance, it's the Spirit's job to bear witness with someone, so guard us from, from giving false assurance to someone, but if we are standing in front of someone who's a genuine believer, help us to be tender and gracious and point them to the Savior, and if there's anyone in here who uh, is struggling, I pray that they would plead the promises, as Greg said, that uh, the promises of Jesus who said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, or Jesus said in John 6, whoever comes to me I will no wise cast out uh, Father, I'm thankful for the local church, as Mark said, how we need each other. I'm just so thankful for the members of our church who have been such an encouragement to me, who have helped me and, and strengthened me by their presence. And I, I pray that uh, this church would always be faithful and we would always be filled with, with members who uh, love each other and to, who strengthen each other's faith uh, week in and week out. And uh, we pray for the service upcoming. Uh, you'd use Mark, use Jerry uh, from his congregational prayer, and use Mark as he teaches and Ian as he leads in the singing to build up your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.